Welcome to PCA One-on-One, Positive Coaching Alliance's podcast series where we talk with leading experts about how to develop better athletes, better people through sports. And now here's your host, Tina Sire, PCA Chief Impact Officer. I'm so pleased to be joined today by Dr. Donna Lopiano, a longtime member of Positive Coaching Alliance's National Advisory Board. Recognized again and again for her groundbreaking work striving for gender equity in sport, Donna spent 15 years as the CEO of the Women's Sports Foundation and was recently recognized by Fox Sports as one of the 10 most powerful women in sports. Before leading the Women's Sports Foundation, Donna served for 18 years as the University of Texas at Austin Director of Women's Athletics, and she is a past president of the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women. Donna now serves as president for Sports Management Resources. Many people are familiar with you because of all of your work focused on gender equity in sport, Um, but I'd like to start in a different place and reflect back on when you first got your introduction to sports, and I know you grew up pre-Title IX, so I'm curious how it was that you first got interested in sports and how you got your start as an athlete. Well, I grew up on a street with 15 boys and one other girl, and I swear that I didn't know I was a girl until I went out to uh, play Little League. I went out to play Little League Baseball. I was drafted number one, and then they told me I couldn't play because I was a girl. <laughs> and oh, wow. And that was you know, a dev- devastating moment in my life. And my parents hunted around for five or six years for you know a place for me to play, and they finally found a women's softball team in a town 30 miles from my hometown called the Rebestas Breakettes. And I had to learn to pitch upside down. It was, you know kind of a devastating thing, but I'm sure it's it's why I ended up being such um being so involved in gender equity. It's terrible to tell any child that they cannot pursue their dreams. Um so so your parents really went out and looked and you ended up having to go thirty miles away from home just to find a team for girls? Absolutely. Yeah. That's that's amazing. I was talking to a woman last night who is I think she's in her early sixties and she has four kids who have all got on to play collegiate sports, and she said to me that she doesn't feel like her daughter realizes she just sort of takes for granted the opportunities for girls, and that she herself, as a 62-year-old, you know, she remembered back to very few opportunities and just sort of women having to stay on their, their half of the basketball court and sort of lamenting that. So um, I just think the work you've done around Title IX has been amazing. So, so one of the things people may not know about you is that you've won more than 26 national championships in four different sports. And, well, you know, not been... exactly. I've, I've, I've participated in national championship tournaments in, in 20, 26, uh, 26 20, tournaments. In, in 26 tournaments in four different sports. Um, I think the number of national championships is probably six. Okay, okay. We didn't win them all. Thank you. We didn't win them all. Yes. <laughs> That's still a pretty good average. We'll, we'll take six national championships. Yeah. So I, I'm curious, you know, you've experienced a lot of, of, you know, athleticism at the highest level and championships. And are there certain things about you that you think made you such a successful athlete on the scoreboard in particular? Well, you know, I, you know as, as the if I ever had the chance club, people that you know um, probably lament it. Um, there were no opportunities, you know, for girls in what we would know today as organized youth sports. Mm-hmm. And school sports were kind of a joke in that, you know, if you're on the basketball team, you might play four or five games. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and you might travel to you know a school within the district, but there were no state high school championships, there were no college athletic scholarships, the coaches mm-hmm. were volunteer physical educators. It was a completely different place. I was fortunate in that not only did I grow up on on the street with fifteen boys and had an opportunity to you know use street play to replace uh, youth sports. Um, I had early access um, when I was 16 years old to this open amateur sports softball team. And this team stayed together for multiple sports. We played volleyball together. We played basketball together. And they were all great athletes. They were all national championship uh, caliber athletes. And I, you know, it, it was, I was lucky to do it, you know, to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a very humble answer. <clears throat> um I'm curious, reflecting specifically on your time, as you say, upside-down pitching for the breakettes, um, I, I've read that you compiled a, a, just an amazing record of 183 wins to 18 losses and averaged almost two strikeouts per inning. And I'm curious, we have a lot of kids who, you know, are they're pitchers or they're in sports where there's a lot of pressure on them individually. And is there, is there a certain advice that you would give them about how to approach a position like pitcher on a team where there is so much pressure that you feel like led you to that kind of success of almost two strikeouts per inning? Well, you know, I think if you're speaking to parents, one of the most important things is the parents shouldn't push kids to mm-hmm. practice or or to do anything. I think it has to be something that's very internal that you're passionate about. Yeah. Uh, if you don't, you know, come home and feel like going outside and throwing 500 pitches against the side of your parents' garage, um, then I mean that has to be internal. If if somebody pushes you, you're going to burn out. You're going to be resentful. Um, I, I I don't know what kind of kids do that, but uh, it's the kind of kid who um, is not pressured by a parent who goes out and is able to have fun on their own and to have an imagination in the backyard to make believe your you know your Whitey Ford or Don Larson who are Yankees of of my error um mm-hmm. and who who you know could be in your own fantasy world um you know for 3 or 4 hours a day yeah. um that's how i learned from trial and error and it was great fun i i never ever felt pressured um playing any sport i ever played and uh, and that's a credit to my parents and so were you one of those kids who was out there in the yard throwing 500 pitches against the house because you loved it? Oh, absolutely. But it never, yeah, I loved it. And It didn't it was, feel like work. Um, yeah. It wasn't work. It, it wasn't. You, it, was, um, it was fantasy play. That's, that's the only way I could uh, really describe it. You would imagine yourself in, you know, bases loaded, you know, two outs, bottom of the ninth, the world championship on the line. And, and you would just make up games and play with yourself. To, um, so that was that was great fun when I was growing up. I loved doing it. Yeah. My mom um, grew up in northern Jersey and actually went to Don Larson's perfect game. So I, I love uh, oh, wow. hearing his yeah. name. Yeah, pretty incredible memory. I think her sister's yeah. still bitter that my mom got to go to that one. So so right. another thing you've done is you've coached um, both men and women, and I know at least volleyball, but I think multiple sports. And I'm curious, when you think back to your start coaching, um, did you find it easier or harder than you sort of thought it was going to be when you, when you first started? I, I found it easy to teach and to coach. I, yeah. I, yeah, there's there's some athletes who really can be athletes and not good teachers. 
Yeah. I really felt teaching was always a challenge, and I love teaching. And I always remember, um, you know, one of my physical education teachers, because I went to school and became a physical education instructor, uh, saying to me, the best teachers learn how to say the same thing 26 different ways so that mm. the 26 kids in your class yeah. uh, get it. And so I've always um, thought that was a challenge, to be able to figure out different ways to say things until people get it. Um, and, and that was the joy of coaching. Um, I loved coaching and um, uh, inspiring kids. Yeah. It's a, well, I think, and, and one of those ways of teaching is, is, you know, doing something visually and letting them model it and the way you say it and just all the different, and especially in today's world with video and people getting to watch themselves. There's so many different ways to teach. I'm, I'm curious if there are one or two specific things that you feel like over the course of your career you've learned that you feel like you wish you'd known um, as a beginning coach or just lessons for for new coaches that you feel like maybe you didn't have when you were green. You know, well, obviously when you're young, you, you're totally impatient. Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, you know, I wish I was more patient um, and, uh, you know, stayed with kids more patiently. Um, it's so easy to, to be frustrated um, with somebody not getting it and then, you know, yeah. trying to give up for a while and coming back to them. Um, yeah. So I, I think patience, uh, you know, comes with, with old age and it makes you better at everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, with, with wisdom, not just old age. So, so I'm that brings up for me it the idea of um you said earlier not always the best athletes are the best coaches and i'm curious if you think you know what is it if you, if a sport comes very naturally to you and you're one of the best athletes why might might you not be naturally one of the best coaches well i think you have to learn to teach um and i really tell people they should go to um um they have to find um some place to learn the principles of pedagogy and motor learning. Um, teaching is a science, uh, and it's also an art. Uh, so my my greatest gift was going to a teacher education institution and becoming a physical education teacher and knowing the mechanics of something, knowing the physics of something, knowing how to uh, explain things, knowing how to you know look at somebody and. Um, uh, figure out what they're doing wrong, uh, and and that's a taught skill. Uh, yeah. Very few people, you know, get that naturally. So I'm a great believer that open amateur sport, uh, national sport governing bodies need to have coaching uh, certification licensing programs, and that you should mm-hmm. go through a A B C D E levels uh, if you're not going to, you know, be a professional teacher yourself. Yeah. Yep. I think, um, you know, Phil Jackson, who's our national spokesperson, talked about how he went to all these coaching camps, but he felt like all he ever got were sort of the X's and O's and the strategy and that nobody was talking about the art of teaching and the art of coaching. And I think that's, you know, where PCA falls is we're going to leave it up to all the the NGBs and the different sport experts to be expert in their sport, but sort of um, the best practices of teachers and coaches trying to share those because our youth coaches, you know, the parents who get thrown out there to coach when there aren't enough coaches, they're not given that kind of help. You know, they're just sort of thrown to the wolves. And uh, it's, yeah. I think a lot of people find the coaching a lot harder than they expected it to be. Yeah. Um, one of the terms PCA talks about is double goal coaches. 
So the idea that when a coach goes out to coach, you know, she's going to have two goals, striving to win, but also to teach life lessons through sports and um, that it is actually possible to, to do both of those things at the same time. And I'm curious, when you reflect back on your experience with sports, do you think there are certain life lessons you gleaned from sports that have helped you achieve all the success that you have in your professional career? Absolutely everything. <laughs> um, uh-huh. No, seriously, it's everything you you, um, you know, teach uh, an athlete in sport ha- is transferable to life after sport. When you look at um, the importance of repetition, um, yeah. I don't care whether it's throwing a softball or rewriting a paper, you know, 50 times or, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, repetition is really important. Um, when you talk about um you know, the pursuit of, of excellence, knowing that you could do something perfectly, um, being mm-hmm. confident you, that you can, um, mm-hmm. as opposed to asking yourself for half of that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when you constantly strive for being good at something, being the best that you possibly can be, if you if you get there 90% of the way, you're going to be better than probably 50% of the population. <laughs> But right. you have to strive for being the very best. Um, right. I, I think there's no question that you learn in sport how to practice the illusion of confidence, that mm-hmm. you realize you're not always confident. Um, yeah. You're, you know, you, you are afraid of some hitters, you're uh, afraid of some pitchers, but you can never let on that, that, that you are. And so you practice this illusion, and, and that bodes well for job interviews, for being in tough situations and uh, you know, in the the workplace, um, yeah. that you can be quietly confident and calm under stress, um, tremendous mm-hmm. uh, carryover value. And you go on and on. Um, um, you know, the, everything you learn in sport, in, in my mind, is transferable. It's a great laboratory for yeah. uh, pursuing excellent performance. So when you when you think about contrasting sports to the classroom, what is it unique to sports that allows kids to to learn these life lessons that maybe if you were trying to do the same sort of character building or life lesson development in the classroom, it wouldn't you couldn't do the sort of things you could do with sports. Well, you know when you're when you're dealing with youth um, who aren't yet intellectually developed, um, mm-hmm. you're not going to deal with theory. Um, right. You don't uh, kind of talk them into ethical uh, decision making. <laughs> <Right. laughs> um, you have to. You, you almost have to teach them how to behave in certain ways, and the theory comes later. So, yep. if you yeah. want to teach sportsmanship, you know what you teach kids is: if somebody falls down, you help them up. After right. a game, right. you shake hands with them. Um, right. You know when when you're when there's three seconds left in a game, you don't intentionally foul. Um, so uh, sport is a, is a behavioral laboratory. There's no time for talk. There's no time for, you know, excessive pr- processing. You want to teach um, these these good behaviors that are kind of automatic habits for later on. Um, right. And they work. They work. Kids understand. Yeah, yeah. And you don't you don't always get that same sort of thing in the classroom where it isn't necessarily competition or they're not as sort of emotionally invested in every moment. Um, that's fantastic. One other thing I thought about where you're concerned is I just feel like this struggle for, for equity um, for women in sports, it's such a long 
struggle. And I feel like sort of grit and persistence are things you learn through sport. And I sort of wondered, someone like you who's a real pioneer and has stuck with this for so many years, I wonder if you would have um, stuck with something that's, that has been sort of a slow change. I guess some people would say in the course of history it's not a slow change, but, you know, it just um, it's not going to change overnight. And if you didn't have that grit and persistence, um, I think we wouldn't sort of be where we are today. Well, sport is all about resilience. It's um, you can't expect to score a basket every single time or, yeah. you know, to be successful against whoever's guarding you. Um, and so I think it's it, it, what you learn in sport better than any place else is, okay, I didn't do it this time. Let me step back, right. figure out what I did wrong, and let me figure out how to fix it. And yeah. that's that's a constant process in every game. Right. Uh, right. It's not. Uh, it, it's like every second you get to do it, mm-hmm. um, and I, I don't think there's any other environment that where that's true. That you get so much practice in such a short period of time of um, trying something, you know, figuring out how to adjust and and trying it again. Yeah. So I think you know, having all the playing and the coaching you've done, you know, there are certain athletes who are better at doing that than others. And are there? certain things that you feel like you learned over the years or things you did with your players to help them be resilient and sort of this idea of focusing forward and, and learning but not sort of ruminating and, and letting it have a negative effect on your game when you don't get the outcome well, you it, want in the moment? I, I think it's the function of every coach to you know, teach a player how to separate the, the player as a person from the player's performance. You can have a bad mm-hmm. practice, you can have a bad game, but that doesn't mean you're a bad person. And it's that separation that allows you to get better in sport, that you're not seeing a failure as something personal. It's a momentary performance problem. And mm-hmm. guess what? The world didn't the world didn't end because of this. It's not gonna <laughs> end when you lose. It's it's you know, it's something that you can fix. And yeah. um I think that's critical to be able to um you know, never personalize error with children. Um yeah. Never say, you know, that was stupid, uh, Tom. Right. You know, right. you, you really should have done this. Um, yeah. You've always got to stay focused on the skill and not the person. Yeah, that's that's profound. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about leadership. And, you know, you've had so many different leadership positions, um, whether it was at UT Athletics or, um, you know, with the Women's Sports Foundation or now is with Sports Management Resources. And I feel like one of a leader's most important jobs is shaping the organizational culture. And what advice can you share with leaders, you know, whether that is an athletic director or the head of a soccer club, um, about how to go about shaping the culture within their own organization? I don't think there's any question that you have to role model work ethic. You know, mm-hmm. you have to work you know, harder than anyone else and set the example for work ethic. Yep. Uh, in terms of the values of the culture, you have to talk about them. You have to constantly mm-hmm. issue mantras that guide decision-making until people mm-hmm. are so sick and tired of them that they say them before you do. Um, <laughs> and, it, it, and I'm serious about it, that, that this, um, the values of an organization have to be spoken. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether it's honesty or whether it's, uh, you know, never be selfish, always share work product. Um, it's your responsibility to make sure, you know, a fellow worker doesn't make a mistake that you could have prevented. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, all of those value things have, are things that have to be constantly repeated so that they're internalized by all your employees. Um, mm-hmm. But I think those are the two big things, values and work ethic. And if you've got those two, you have a great organization. So I've I've read that one of the things you think a successful manager or leader can have is humility and sort of being humble and, um, you know, it's never possible to be sort of, I think you said, like too cordial. And I was just wondering if you could talk about sort of humility and um, and that piece of leadership and management for a bit. Well, I think it's a lot easier to get people to recover from a mistake um, and to, and to not be defensive about it and to get them to admit to their own errors if you take the burden of blame off them. So mm. you know, if something happens in an organization that goes wrong, um, no matter how well you've explained it to people, to say, yeah. you guys, my fault. My fault, I, I didn't explain this well enough. Or, mm. you know, I really didn't make it clear. I should have put this system in place. But we got to figure this out. Well, you yeah. know, now yeah. what, what can you contribute to solving it? Instead of laying blame, it's the same thing, you know, you learned it on a sports team. You um, yes. take blame for the double play not going right. Uh, right. Think my fault. I don't, mm-hmm. You know, I could have thrown that, um, you know, that that ball I just threw to you, I could have been more sympathetic with that. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, that really makes people um, more open to looking at themselves and fixing uh, fixing the problem. And I, I, I think that's the function of humility. It's not false humility as much as it is no. um, looking at, guess, guess what, it's a team. You can't ever blame one person for losing on a team. Right. Uh, how many hundred things happened in the game? I don't care. Right. You know, and if that person does the last bad thing, it's not fair, you know, blaming that person. So you've got to carry that into the workplace, too. When you're consulting with athletic directors or, or different leaders of organizations, do they ever push back on this and say, I don't, I feel like it could hurt me if I take the blame or say that it was my fault and somehow that there's like pushback on that? Or do people buy into this concept pretty quickly? No, I, I, I think they buy in because, you know, one of the things that you do when you, you know, go into organizations and try to set them up for success is, you show uh, an athletic director the kind of of detail that they have to master in order mm-hmm. to uh, get people to achieve. So mm-hmm. if you don't have a strategic plan in place, if you don't have action plans, if people don't clearly right. understand their assignments, if you don't have measurable objectives, if you don't have evaluation right. systems. Right. And so whenever you – when something goes wrong – you know, it's probably because you didn't start with the system that made something clear. Got it. Um, yeah. And and so it's pretty easy to to kind of buy into that. Yeah. Yeah. Because because we're all not not great at this part of administration. We don't have the time to set up these systems. That's a frustrating right. part of you know being an athletic director. You just run around like uh, somebody with their head cut off half the time. Uh, there's right. no planning time. There's no time to do this stuff. So many different responsibilities. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I guess I, I want to turn the focus um, now to a little bit to Title IX, and I think you know as we see more and more girls playing, um, I know from my own perspective, I feel like we're not necessarily not necessarily seeing more and more women coaching. And I'm wondering if you could comment a little bit on that. Like, what have you seen over these years about the female coaching ranks? 
um, on a professional level and maybe a collegiate level, but also at the volunteer youth level where a lot of our time is spent, where PCA's time is spent? You know, I, I think the women coaches are out there. They're not being encouraged in the same way as boys. They're not being yeah. hired in the same way as men. Um, yeah. And that's a real mistake, uh, especially at the youth sport level when you, um, you've got this first generation of Title IX female that's athletes right. who are now parents. Yep. And mm -hmm. they're good at it. They're great at it. Uh, yeah. But somebody has to say, yes, you can, because one of the, the things that's so unfortunate about um, women is women think they have to be certified in order to do something, that someone has to say, you mm -hmm. are credentialed. Yeah. Um, and what do we teach boys? You know, I, I, I just, yeah. you know, <laughs> just do it. It's like, you know, Wing the it. kid right. comes up right. and says, coach, coach, I want to play second base. Yeah, go and play second base. Learn in the school of hard knocks. You know, it's a, right. but you right. know, we don't do that to girls. We we you know condition their performance on having to jump through hoops, and that's a mistake. So, um, yeah, I think we have to do much more to encourage women to take these youth sport. Um, you know, just to say you can. That's that's it. Yeah, because it's not hard yeah. to coach a six-year-old. Yeah, I had that personal experience this fall. I coached my son's kindergarten soccer team. And I, uh, my experience has been coaching. <laughs> I've, I've been used to coaching college women and Olympic development, and you know, you sort of say something, and they're really motivated, and they do it. And here I am with all these five and six-year-old boys running in many different directions. Uh, but uh, I think it was wonderful how much positive encouragement I got from the parents of the players, and how happy they were to have a mom coaching the boys' team. And uh, and I mean, to the point where I feel like I got a lot of nice encouragement um, from the parents to where I want to do it again. Um, next year, I'd just like to see you know more more moms doing it. Do you know of any organizations or sports that you think do a really good job um, reaching out to women and encouraging women and moms to get into coaching? Any models out there? You know, that, that that's know the pity of our uh, of our youth sports system. Um, in many cases, it's neighborhood parents with very yeah. little training. And right, right. so, and for a lot of the, you know, the old dinosaur, the the guys, you know, this is the yeah. last bastion of male superiority. Um, uh, mm. You know, we know how to do this. <laughs> you know, like it's in your genes, and and right. women don't have that gene. Um, right. And so, boy, at the at the local youth level where there is no training, no training in gender equity right. or gender discrimination or. Uh, it's no. not no. unusual to, you know, for the guys to just, you know, have the women stay on the outside. Yeah. It's a shame. Yeah. It really yeah. is. Yeah. I know AYSO um, has done a lot of work trying to get moms involved, and I, I sort of wish that more um, youth sports organizations could learn from that, because I agree. I think um, the women are sort of an untapped resource, especially those of us who benefited so much growing up after Title IX and, you know, played and feel confident enough to at least coach the five-year-olds. Um, Donna, I'm coming but to I, my... I think, my... The, I think the male... The, the male um... Um, coaches or the, or, or the guys who are running youth sports have to mm -hmm. open that door. It is yes. not the absence of interested women. It's it's the right. absence of mentor, mentoring male allies um, yep. who see how important it is. So that's where the change has to take place. We need to find them. Did you happen to attend the Women's Sports Foundation's annual salute this year back in October? No, 
I didn't. I didn't. Okay. I w- imagine I w- might have seen you there if you had been there. I um, I got to meet probably one of my biggest heroes, and then I got to meet Billie Jean King. Um, and I shared with her that when I was two years old, my mom wanted me to dress up as a kitty cat for Halloween, and I said I wanted to be uh. king. And I got out a tennis <laughs> racket and sunglasses, and I dressed up as Billie Jean King. And um, and I, I really think that it's not an exaggeration to say that I wonder if the course of my life would have really been different if I hadn't had someone like Billie Jean King as a role model and a high-profile female athlete who was on TV and, you know, that I could be an athlete. And, um, you know, my whole career now is in sports, and I, it's my passion, and I think I owe that in part to her. And I'm curious, what do we know about the impact of having high-profile female sports role models for, for girls and their participation in sports? In a media culture, it's critical. And yeah. you know, one of the problems we have to face right now is only 1.6% of all newspaper coverage is women's sports. We oh aren't gosh. seeing yeah. yeah, we aren't seeing those female um, role models. So right. it's... You know, it's something that has to change. And this digital environment, this Internet environment, does hold a promise now of of breaking that TV barrier, you know, where the broadcast stations, over-the-air stations, you know, or the cable television stations might be enthralled with men's sports. Now Mm -hmm. any girl can go on the Internet and find images of other girls succeeding in sports, and that's immensely important. Yep, yep, absolutely. Um, Well, Donna, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview today and supporting PCA by being on our National Advisory Board. Um, We're so much stronger and lucky for it, and we really appreciate you and and all you do, um, not just for PCA, but for for girls in sports and sports in general. So thank you so much. Been good, good talking to you, Tina. Thanks for joining us on this episode of PCA One-on-One. Be sure to visit PositiveCoach.org to download more podcasts.